Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Tuesday, November 12th, we are studying Amos chapter 7, verses 1 through 3. The prophet begins to relate a series of visions in which he sees the judgment that the Lord is bringing against his people Israel. The first of those visions that we'll look at today is a swarm of locusts. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us the Reverend Dr. Phil Boo. Pastor Boo serves at Christ Lutheran Church in Hebron, Connecticut. Pastor Boo, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Well, thank you very much, Tim. I'm uh, excited to be here. So help us this morning just get started with some context in the book of Amos. We really are starting a new section as Amos begins to relate these visions. How do we get to this point? Right. So, so this chapter sort of begins the final third of the prophecy of Amos as it's being laid out. And um, up to this point, Amos, of course, at the direction of God, has been preaching and proclaiming to the people to repent of their various sins, their sins of injustice, the sins of the, the leaders, and, um, in, and what we see is that the, the Israelites are not responding. They're not returning to the Lord. They're, um, um, they're uh, doubling down on their sins. And so in this climax, uh, we have all of these, these woes that are pronounced upon the people, and as we approach chapter 7, which is where we're going to talk today, um, we have uh, the strength of the strength of the leadership in the Israelites being proclaimed. They're proclaiming their strength over and against, uh, really over and against God who is over them. So they're starting to rely on themselves and uh, their self-reliance, either in their strength in numbers or their ability to to survive is going to be challenged by God. And that's what we're going to see as we get into the visions. Um, the visions come as very, very enigmatic uh, and, and acute reactions to God's um, judgment on, on the people. He's called them to repentance. He's called them um, uh, to uh, recognize their sins. And now we have visions of exactly what he's going to do as a matter of judgment. Um, and then we, we're going to explore whether or not those things happen and whether or not they work, and that's where we're at. Yeah, so uh, one, one thing I just want to point out again, so chapter 7 is really the beginning of the end of, of Amos, if you will. It's that last third. This is where Amos has been driving to. Now he, the people, are going to see what the Lord is planning to do in terms of his judgment. And I want to talk a little bit about that idea that Amos saw these things. We'll read in verse 1 of chapter 7 that this is what the Lord God showed me. We have this, this image that the prophet sees something, and we even had that back at the very beginning of the book of Amos, uh, where where the prophet opened the words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, etc. So you get this image more than once in Amos, and it comes up in other prophets too, that they saw something. How how should we understand this, Pastor Boo? Well, you're right. These first four visions out of the five have this same um, the same. Thus, the Lord Yahweh showed me, and we have to say, is this some sort of inward illumination? Is this something where, in his mind's eye, the Lord is giving him this vision, or is he with his, I guess, biological eye? Seeing something happened. Um, e either way, um, it, some commentators are saying that you know this is pretty impossible to determine. I, I don't know. I think that what we see here in this this idea of a vision is the main point is that what is being proclaimed um, is something that God is foretelling uh, could possibly happen. So regardless, he's not even if he's seeing it with his physical eye, 
he's not seeing something taking place in real time. He's seeing something that could happen. Um, and the reason why we know it's only something that could happen is because, well, a couple of them don't happen. You know, we don't want to get there too soon, but God's going to end up relenting on some of these things. But uh, regardless, yeah, it begins with this idea that he's seeing these things take place. And, and prophets often have these visions. These That's why they call, used to call them seers. They have these visions throughout the Old Testament. And we often on this side of uh, the events happening try to determine, well, is this something that he actually saw or saw in his brain? Uh, but either way, um, the main point is that what is happening is being delivered to him by God. So it's not something he's making up. Right. And I think that's why that question is just an important one to at least think about, because the science of it, if you want to put it that way, is nowhere explained to us in the scriptures. But there are some that might try to take this as what you might say, a dream, a hallucination, in the sense that it wasn't real, or or it didn't happen. It was the prophet's imagination that just made this up. And, and we don't want to go there. However, the Lord chose to let Amos and other prophets see these things. It was, it was a real experience. Uh, this isn't a lie. It's not a figment of the prophet's imagination. This is something that the Lord is showing Amos ahead of time, for the purpose of, of him preaching, for the purpose of him praying, as, as we'll see in today's text. And, and so, at least with, with that in mind, if we're starting from that point, then the way we answer this question may be, may be different. But we want to start in that place, that what Amos is seeing here, this is truth from the Lord himself. Is that a fair way to summarize that? Well, absolutely. I mean, probably more important to, um, you know, exactly the mechanics of, of how prophets receive, because we have these same discussions. We have these same discussions when we talk about um, how were the writers inspired to write the scriptures. Um, what we see here is that uh, the text begins, this is what the Lord God or Yahweh God showed me. And then the very next word is hene, it's behold. And when when hene is used, when behold is used, it it's usually used to say, hey, look over there, there's something happening. So even in this text, whether again he's experiencing this, you know, some sort of metaphysically, or whether um, it's just sort of being projected into his brain, his reaction is a, it's coming from God, and b, look, something's actually happening. So he's able to he's able to see something concretely taking place, and how he experiences that. Um, yeah, I, I don't know that we know for sure. So let's go ahead and see then what Amos saw. We're in Amos chapter 7, verses 1 through 3 today. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, he was forming locusts when the latter growth was just beginning to sprout. And behold, it was the latter growth after the king's mowings. When they had finished eating the grass of the land, I said, O Lord God, Please forgive. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. The Lord relented concerning this. It shall not be, says the Lord. So there's Amos, Amos's first vision. And Pastor Boots, probably just good to, to make sure we understand the scene, the setting that Amos saw in verse 1 and the first part of verse 2. What is he seeing here? Well, that question is um, deceptively simple. What is he seeing? It says that uh, he said, behold, uh, he, he sees that he was, that's God, Yahweh, was forming locusts when the latter growth was just beginning to sprout. So we have uh, two major things here. The locusts, and I guess he was forming them. Uh, that, what stage, uh, what particular type of insect is this? Um, and then the the latter growth, uh, what does latter growth mean? And, uh, and that gets answered a little bit in, in, the, in the following clause, but those big things are what is um, up for debate, to be honest, because essentially we can hash out what it means literally, and then we can hash out what it signifies. And so just to start level one, get the very basic reading out of the way, uh, behold, he sees locust forming. Some translations render that 
grasshoppers. I don't know why. I mean, it's the sort of caterpillar state locusts. They're just starting to come out. Um, The word itself actually signifies to to creep forth. That's kind of how they're described. Um, But but they're an insect that we've seen before. Um, A locust swarm in uh, in the in the ancient East, just sort of the phenomenon, not even the prophecies or God's plagues, but the phenomenon of a locust swarm is something that the people would have been able to definitely identify with, because locust swarms did occur naturally, even when God wasn't directing them. They 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 just are ravenous. They destroy the land. And what's really interesting about you know something like this, at least in that time is that this is an enemy against whom they are helpless. You know, you can fight off uh, people who are coming to uh, make war with you. Uh, you, can, you, can, you can plant uh, uh, crops that um, do better in different soils. You can shade your crops from the cold and from the heat. But locusts, they're just so many, so pervasive, so powerful. The idea of a locust swarm is terrifying. So the fact that the locusts are coming, and then we have the second part, when the latter growth was beginning to sprout. And then he goes on to explain more. Behold, it was the latter growth after the king's mowings. So this isn't just grass. These are actual food vegetables. And the, the food that they're going to take um, and, and, and survive on, this is the harvest, right, that, that, that they're going to survive on for the rest of the year, the locusts. He sees forming at this time just when the people's share of the, uh, of the growth was going uh, to come out. So not only would locusts be indefensible against, but it would be absolutely devastating. In fact, the, 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 the idea here is that if this happened, the people are going to die. So I, I want to pick up on the thing you said about this is an enemy against whom they are helpless in the context, as you pointed out at the beginning. Chapter 6 has just the people were boasting about their strength, particularly their mil- military strength. And so the first thing now that Amos sees in his series of visions is an enemy that try as the people might, they simply will not be able to defend themselves against. So you've got these locusts, these these insects that would be absolutely devastating. And I think it's, it's worth pointing out that it, the text says he was forming locusts. So, so it's not, as you said, this isn't just another swarm that they're used to. This is something that the Lord is behind. And his timing of it is, is exactly on purpose. He's doing it right when this latter growth is coming out. So the, and I think the, the picture that we should have is you've, you've got some crops that are almost ready to harvest, but not quite. And, and then you've got another set of crops or maybe garden vegetables that are just starting to sprout. And so if this locust swarm comes at this time, it's going to get both of them. There's, there's not going to be that first harvest because those plants will be destroyed. And you can't count on the second harvest because those plants are starting to come up and they'll be destroyed too. And so you, you've got an absolutely devastating event that the Lord is showing to the prophet Amos here. So is, is there more beyond that that we should see here, Pastor? But you're talking level one and, and level two. Right. So we have, as you said, if this becomes a reality, then what's going to happen is all the vegetation, um, the seeds, everything is just going to be absolutely destroyed. Um, the question at hand is, is, does this mean something different? We know what it says. We know what it signifies. But is it symbolic? Is it allegorical? And there are plenty of people who um, – commentators throughout history who have said, you know what? There's more to this than meets the eye. Um, in fact, Luther himself describes this vision as um, enigmatic. He describes it as uh, – that. He says that Amos is going from clear language in the previous chapters, or as we would understand as chapters, and now he's going into these enigmas and visions. Well, what's interesting about that is then other scholars say, 
oh no 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 this is very clear he's making very he's making a lot of sense it's locust or locust and the and he's even giving us the timing etc so the question is if if the locusts aren't locusts then what are they and uh there have been some um some scholars who out there and say you know what the locusts don't represent actual locusts but rather they represent um enemies that the the people have faced um, powerful enemies, enemies that can come and conquer them against whom they have no defense, and that the, in this case, the locusts very much could mean the Assyrians. Hmm. Hmm. So he's he's just gotten done. I want to I want to press on this a little bit, Pastor Boo. Mm-hmm. He's just gotten yep. done in verse fourteen, saying or fourteen in the previous chapter, I will raise up against you a nation. So the people have heard Amos talk about some sort of nation, a physical enemy of people that's going to come against them and way exile is an image that the prophet has used here. Now he he switches to agriculture to to locusts. Uh, what what's your I'll just put you on the spot a little bit. What's your take on mm-hmm. on this? Should we understand locusts as the Lord is threatening what happened to Egypt, or is he still riffing on that Assyrian motif? Exactly. So we I think we have to keep going to try to figure out a little bit because then we go into the next part. So if it's not locusts, if it is something um, meaning a, a great enemy like the Assyrians. Then what the then the other things have to signify or represent something too. So you know what in the world does uh, the the ladder the the crops stand for? What is the ladder growth after the king's mowings? Uh, who is the king? Um, and so some of the reasons why they've come up with this is because there's really no uh, at least biblical evidence that the, that the king was entitled to say the first cut of the mowings. So when it describes that it was the latter growth uh, after the king's mowings, then some scholars say, well, you know, we don't really see that that they took a, a first cut of the of the uh, of the crops. So you know, what could that mean? And uh, one scholar says that the king himself is Yahweh, and the mowings represent the past judgments on Israel, and then this growing of the second crop is the prosperity which Israel regains after those mowings. On the other hand, um, the literal locusts uh, could represent just a a famine that's going to happen. But the problem with that is if it is literal locusts, then who is exempted? Somebody actually gets exempted from this judgment. Because if we read into the next verse, Amos says, when they had finished eating the grass of the land, I said. So, so it was the latter growth after the king's mowings that the locusts began to form. And when they had finished eating the grass of the land, I said. So the assumption here is that the first cut has already been given to the kings or the leaders. And if that's the case, then the people whom God is pronouncing so many woes against – are now the ones, really, at least this first vision, being spared the judgment. They've gotten their cut, and now the people are having to bear the burden of the famine that's going to come. So uh, that's why some scholars say, you know what, let's not lean towards a literal understanding, but because it just wouldn't make sense in the context of, of God's judgment against the leadership. But let's look at it in this more figurative way. And um, the figurative way would then say also that the growth of the grass um, after the king's mowings means this political revival of Israel, in particular under Jeroboam, after it had been first mowed down, as you might think, um, by Syria. Uh, and we see that in Second Kings. So you know, I'm going to leave it up to the hearer which direction they go, to be honest, because I, I, I think that there is great evidence for – from both sides, and there's also some fervent commentary on both sides of this issue. Um, while I think it's fascinating, I, I also think, though, that it doesn't necessarily change the point or the, the message God has for us or uh, a lot of the other big issues. I mean, it was very important to them, but I think for us to get something out of the text, so to speak, 
I don't think we have to come down on exactly what it is. There are certainly we're so far removed from some of these incidents that um, we sometimes we just aren't going to really know. Hmm. Yeah, that that's an interesting point. I'm gonna I'm gonna come down a little bit more on on a, a side here. I think, and, okay. and just because I, I I to me it 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 seems in the context of Amos to see the locusts as locusts makes a lot of sense with what Amos has been doing elsewhere, particularly chapter four. The end of chapter four, the Lord lists several plagues that he has sent against the people of Israel in hopes that they would listen and repent, and they don't return to him. And and there in Amos chapter four, the Lord seems to be pointing to very literal historical events that happen, and many of them dealing with natural things, you know, uh, drought, famine, uh, blight and mildew, something else that, that happens to crops. And and there were a lot of connections there to Egypt and the plagues that happened sure. against Egypt. And locusts, too, are a, a plague against Egypt, one of the worst ones. And, and in particular, with the timing of the locusts, right? I think the, you have to remember, we just did this, right? The, the hail mm-hmm. comes first and then the locusts with that same idea that nothing's going to be left in terms of the timing. And so I, I just, to me, that that really weighs heavily in favor of seeing the locusts as as locusts here that the people are going to to latch on to. Another way of of Amos, well, this is what the Lord is is showing him, right? But but that that the Lord gives this word to Amos in something that the people are going to be able to to hold on to as he preaches it. They know what locusts are. And to see that the Lord is sending locusts against them, I think, is meant to to hit them upside the head, and and let them see, hey, you guys are just like Egypt. You need to repent. So, I mean, that's 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 where I would, I, well, I think, I'm, I would, I, yeah. I mean, and I'm not suggesting that you're wrong or by any means. That's the point of sharper iron, right? Is, is so that we right, get well, to, to talk about these things. But that's kind of where totally... I, I'm coming down. Well, I was just going to say, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm thoroughly convinced by your argument. I guess the one part, um, and, and I didn't come down either way, the one part that I guess challenges me is just this idea that if it were literal, then um, a couple things happen. One, the, the leaders, the kings already get their cut. That is, this particular issue would only affect the people, not the leadership. And maybe the argument is that, well, they get theirs in later visions. But then secondly, um, it's also interesting that uh, uh, Amos doesn't really call out to the Lord. to, in, to, to He doesn't intercede on behalf of the people um, until after it says that they have finished eating the grass of the land. Now, I'm not 100 percent sure that there's anything to that of significance, but I just it just sort of stands out to me. So I don't know how how might we look at the fact that the that the leadership sort of misses out on this particular judgment if it's the leadership themselves against whom uh, the Lord is calling down judgment. Right. That that is a that is a challenge. Why why would the Lord send a vision to Amos that would show judgment coming upon the everyday, the poor people, the very ones that the the leaders have been oppressing, why would they receive a judgment and the kings be exempt from it? You would you would think that it would be the other way around. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I mean, and I so I understand. Just as a clarification, it's just so I make sure I'm following you. In verse two, where the the ESV reads, "When they had finished eating the grass of the land, the they there that's the locusts, right?" So correct. Okay. All right. So, so the the prayer of Amos, "O Lord God, please forgive," comes after the locusts have have really done their done their destruction, and that's when right. the prophet begins to pray, which in which the maybe of his vision. Right. Right. So, and and so maybe maybe the prophet seeing this that in this locust swarm that it it's these very poor people that have suffered the worst, that then is what moves him to pray as fervently as he does. One, one, and not to let out too much, but one thing that we're going to see as we progress through these visions is that Amos prays in this vision and the next, 
although his prayers are different. And we'll talk about that more in the, in the next episode. After that, you, you stop seeing Amos intercede as much. And, and so perhaps it is, and I'm just kind of thinking out loud right now, it, sure. perhaps it is that he's seen the king get off clean, and that's what moves him to pray so much here. I don't know. We have just under a minute left, Pastor Boo, for any concluding thoughts, and then we'll, we'll pick up more with Amos's prayer on the other side of the break. Awesome. Well, so just to say then that um, if the locusts he's seeing are being formed when the latter growth was just beginning, then the locusts aren't even coming on the scene until after the kings have already gotten their share. And so it's Luther who says that this is God's threat with which he indicates that the army of the Assyrians, which he calls locusts, will come to destroy everything so that there will be not uh, anything left to remain. And so the, the, it's an older idea that this is allegorical, which is pretty consistent with Luther and early Christians. Um, but I don't know. It's interesting. It's worth hashing out. Yeah, who am I to disagree with Luther? I, I don't know, Pastor Boo. <laughs> we're uh, we're looking here. Luther card. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah. We're we're gonna have to we're gonna have to think about that. We're we're gonna do that on the other side of the break, though. We're looking at Amos seven verses one through three this morning on Sharper Iron. We're gonna take that break, but we'll be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233, 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron on Tuesday, November 12th. We're looking at Amos chapter 7, verses 1 through 3 with Pastor Phil Boo of Christ Lutheran Church in Hebron, Connecticut. Pastor Boo, prior to the break, we'd looked at the vision that Amos saw these locusts that are being formed by the Lord for total destruction, and Amos sees it. And the next major thing in this vision is that Amos prays, and he says, Oh, Lord God, please forgive. What what do we see here with Amos's prayer? Uh, well, first of all, it's it's just amazing, because Amos is doing exactly what the prophets are supposed to do, and of course what the people of God are supposed to do. So you have one hand, he spends the first two parts of this vision proclaiming God's will, um, speaking God's word for them to repent, and now he's in the situation where God is, is doubling down on it, saying, now I'm going to send actual physical judgments against you. Um, and now he sees these visions. He himself is terrified, A, because when you talk about the people, remember prophets, priests, pastors, we're part of the people. We're sinners too. But also he prays out on behalf of the people. He intercedes. He says, Lord, please forgive. He doesn't say, hey, listen, these people aren't that bad. He doesn't say, um, hey, you know what? The people deserve this. No, he says, please forgive. And caught up in forgiveness is this reality that he knows they're unrepentant. The, the, the guilt's overwhelming. The punishment is just. Um, and nevertheless, in spite of the, the futileness of which it would be to go against the perfect God and say, hey, listen, I know we have nothing to offer, and I know that we're all guilty, and I know that really your justice demands punishment. But you know what? Forgive us anyway, and I think that's a, a powerfully brave thing for Amos to do, um, and we know that in this day it's brave for us to do as well. That's why um, even when we pray the Lord's Prayer, it's sort of part of a tradition to say um, we are bold to pray the prayer which the Lord has given us. So when we come before the throne of God, even in this day, it's uh, it's it's not like talking to our buddy. It's it's coming before the the person who could uh, or the being who could uh, punish us in hell and destroy both body and soul and yet we're bold enough just like as Amos is bold enough to say you know what we don't deserve it but we want you to forgive anyway please mm. 
So let, let's let's dig into this a little bit. So you say Amos is doing exactly what he's supposed to be doing as as a prophet. And this, I, I think, is I, I, you're, you're right about that, I, I believe. But I think when, when I think about the one who's supposed to intercede and pray, and perhaps when many people think as well, that tends to be more of the role of a priest. Typically, we think of—I mean, this is the way that I explain it usually in, in my catechesis classes, is that the prophet is the one who hears what God says, and speaks to the people. The priest is the one who hears what the people say and then speaks that prayer to God. But here we're seeing a prophet functioning in that role. Can you give us some more biblical background on prophets who intercede for the people? Well, I don't, uh, you know, and maybe I overspoke. I, I do believe that prophets intercede on behalf of the people. We see it with Moses and others. But right. I don't even know necessarily that it's out of his prophetic vocation. I think it's out of his vocation as one numbered among the people. And that was, I think that was more the point I was trying to make, because I, I think of, of Jesus, the prophet, priest, and king, uh, all in one, perfect, coming down, numbering himself among the people, and then, and then taking on our punishment, though he doesn't deserve it. And then I think of the priests and prophets, I think of pastors today, and I think, you know, there's this been this there's this history throughout sorry there's this habit throughout history to put on a pedestal people who have some sort of authority kings and presidents and yet they're just among the people they so when prophets or priests regardless intercede on behalf of the people let's not forget that they're interceding on behalf of themselves too mm-hmm. i mean he's terrified when he sees all of those locusts eating up the eating up the land and um so I think that part of it is he's speaking out of his his role as uh, as a as one of the people too, mm-hmm. but we do see that prophets also intercede. I mean Moses has obviously a lot of uh, incidents where he's concerned about the fate of the people, um, and uh, Abraham too. I think that's a very valuable insight that Amos prays as one who is numbered among the people, and I think this whole incident really helps us to color everything that we've heard from Amos up to this point, he's very much a preacher of the law, as as just about everyone has, has recognized throughout this study. Amos just does not have a lot of gospel to say until you get to the end. And it would be easy to get the picture of Amos, maybe from chapters one through six, that he enjoys it somehow, that, that he likes like putting it. these people in their place. But here in in chapter 7, verse 2, where he prays as one who's numbered among the people, who who sees this impending destruction, he he prays for forgiveness for them. It really helps us understand why Amos is preaching at all. The Lord has spoken to him, and so he must preach. And, And he, like the Lord, wants this people to turn, to repent, and receive the Lord's mercy. And so this this really gives us an insight into the heart of the prophet, and hopefully the heart of, of the pastor and, and the preacher still today, um, and maybe serves as an example, you might say, for the pastor and the preacher today in terms of the attitude when it comes to the, the preaching of the law. And and I, I appreciate what you said too, you know, that you know, we do see Moses doing this, we see Abraham doing this. And and sometimes these lines just aren't always clear cut when it comes to who's a prophet, who's who's a priest, right? And and Amos isn't a priest, but he's he's doing that priestly duty. I think all of that is pointing us forward to this is Amos foreshadowing, prefiguring the the role of Christ. And, and I want to talk about that, but but before I do, I want to come back to a couple of things you were you're saying in terms of what exactly is Amos praying for when he says, please forgive. And I think you you were touching on that. You know, he doesn't make excuses. He doesn't say they've earned it or something like that. He says, please forgive. So what exactly is he praying for here, Pastor Boo? Well, he's he's praying particularly that God would not do what he's going to do. Um, because he's he's not even necessarily asking God to overlook the sins of the people. I mean, he, he knows that judgment is coming. I mean, he's been spending his entire prophetic career, right, proclaiming that. He knows the day is coming. You know, woe to those who look forward to that day. But but this is just too much. This this is a debt that cannot be cannot be paid. 
it cannot be withstanded. Um, locusts are swarms of insects that people literally, even when they're natural, can't defend against um, in the same way that the Lord's wrath, especially when he's using locusts, either literally or figuratively, the Lord's wrath is, uh, uh, is an enemy against which we have no defense. And so he says, um, O Lord God, Yahweh God, please forgive, turn aside. Uh, uh, repent and uh, relent is a better way to say it because we always get hung up on repent, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But then his defense, though, is because how can Jacob stand? He is so small. And before we get into what it means that he's small, we should look at why does he say Jacob? Why does he say Jacob? And so when he says, please forgive, we combine that with the idea that he says, how can Jacob stand? And what this is pointing us to is not their, uh, their deserving of forgiveness. It doesn't point to even the fact that, hey, listen, these are just puny creatures. Please just have mercy on them. It's calling God to remember something that he did, and that is the mention of Jacob is a, is a plea that God should remember his covenant with their forefather, the patriarch. How can Jacob stand? It's like name-dropping. God, remember Jacob? Remember the, the covenant you made? This, this will wipe us out, and that's not consistent with your justice, with your word. So really, if God were to follow through with this punishment, then God will be going against something that he promised that he wouldn't do. And this is, this is how Amos is appealing to the Lord. So he he asks the Lord to forgive, not because of anything that the people have done, but precisely because of the promise that the Lord himself has made to Jacob. And, and we should keep in mind what that promise is. That promise is that the seed's going to come through this line. The Savior of the world's going to come through this line. And so, I mean, you, you might even say, I think, Amos invokes Christ as the reason for, for the forgiveness. This has nothing to do with Israel's works or deserving of forgiveness, but everything to do with God's promise to forgive for the sake of Christ. And so, Pastor Boo, just to keep us moving through the text, because I know we want to get to verse 3, how can Jacob stand? He is so small. Take, take us further into those words. Well, first of all, I love it. One of my things about um, John, the Gospel of John that I like so much, is just how it is chock full of irony. And we have here just some beautiful irony on behalf of, of course, the Holy Spirit, but Amos's um, um, reflections here. In chapter 6, as you mentioned at the beginning of the show, verses 1 and 3, the woe goes, woe to those who are at ease in Zion. Woe to those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria, the, the notable men, the first of the nations to whom the house of Israel comes. Later, verse 8, it says, uh, uh, the Lord God has sworn by himself, declares the Lord God of hosts. I abhor the pride of Jacob, right? They're, they're prideful. I hate his strongholds. See, they, they build up these physical defenses that they think will protect them from anything. And then all the way into verse 13 of chapter 6, uh, you who rejoice in Lodabar, who say, have we not by our own strength captured Karadim? So, so he says, all you who are boasting in your strength, uh, woe to you. We fast forward, and right after that, he says, please forgive them because they're weak. Please forgive them because they're so helpless. Please forgive them. They're pitiable, and not because they deserve it, because obviously they don't, but because of your promise. So this smallness is really the reality. They are actually small and weak in reality, and also when compared to the reality of God's grandeur and per perfection, and and. It just is such a disconnect between the way they see themselves and the way that um, the way that a God sees them and the way that probably even the other nations see them. Yeah, that, that's that's an interesting point that that they think they're big, they're actually small, especially when when compared to the Lord. So Amos sees the true reality that the people fail to see. And, and so he, he brings this up in his prayer. He's asked the Lord to forgive, not because of the people, 
but because of who the Lord is, his promise to Jacob. These these people, much like Jacob, are are small. Think of, of Jacob within, within his narrative in the book of Genesis. And then the Lord responds to the prayer in verse 3, the way that ESV translate it, translates it, the Lord relented concerning this, it shall not as the Lord. And you, you've touched on this a little bit already, Pastor Boo. Take us into the, what it means that the Lord relents. Right. So the Lord relents or he repents, repents just in the literal sense of, of he's going in one direction and he's turning around and now he's going to go in another direction. And so I think we're challenged anytime the Lord proclaims something through a prophet so boldly, going to do this, and then he doesn't do it. And we're challenged because, well, we have verses like Numbers chapter 23, verse 19. Um, God is not man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind as he has said. And he, uh, pardon me, he has said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? So you have on the one hand, the scripture is saying, hey, here's God. He doesn't change, and if he says it, he's going to do it. You can count on it. And then you have uh, James in the New Testament. Every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation, no shadow due to change. You can't expect God to change. So we have this idea that God is a God who doesn't change. And if he says it, you can count on it. Because if you couldn't count on it, if God was a fickle human that changed his mind, was able to be persuaded to turn aside all the time, then his judgments, his woes, his threats wouldn't mean much. We would probably have what we have today in some modern day um, um, uh, religions where they say that, oh, God won't ever send anyone to hell because you know god's all love and that doesn't matter um he'll he'll change his mind eventually so what do we do with this i mean we struggle with this every time this happens what do we do with it um one way we can look at it is that god hasn't changed his mind because the change is not in the mind of god right god's justice is still there the people haven't repented yet the people deserve all this punishment but the change is what he does, what he, the effect, what happens outside of God. See, God's unchangingness or, or unchangeability, immutability, it, it, it happens in his character. That God is just, there will be judgment. Um, intercessory prayer is part of that justice that he has. It's just that he hears intercessory prayer. Um, just as it's also just for him to let this judgment happen on the people. So what we see is that God's – the change that's happening is something that's outside the mind of God. He's deciding to not act in a way that he threatened to act, but he does that um, in view that he knows the ultimate plan. And uh, you know, Amos doesn't probably even have a full grasp of that yet. So, so take us then from from that into the role of the intercessory prayer in the way that the Lord uh, changes direction, maybe maybe might be, or, or changes the the verdict, or changes the the judgment that he he sp- well, not even the judgment, it changes the no. the way that he does the judgment. I suppose right. um, might be though. Take us how how does the intercessory prayer of Amos play into that? Well, we think real quick, you know, Ezekiel, um, do I take pleasure in the death of the wicked? And the, the expected answer is no, declares the sovereign Lord. Rather, I am not, rather, am I not pleased, or rather, I am pleased when they turn from their ways and live. And of course, we have that, um, that God desires all people to come to the knowledge of the truth from First Timothy. So God's nature is that he desires people to turn and live. So his threats of judgment aren't because he enjoys judging people in the same way that Amos doesn't, but because he desires for them to turn. And so part of that, part of that is, well, if the people have no worthiness to come before God, then how is it that um, 
who is there has to be an intercessor. There has to be someone that stands between God um, and man. And in the Old Testament, uh, we see prophets and priests and and other people raised up by God to serve that role. But as you mentioned earlier, they are but types. They're but foreshadowing. They're little samples, a mouche-bouche of what's to come. And what's to come is Christ Jesus, the one mediator between God and man. And it's interesting that we get this language of the mediator, the language of God desiring people to be saved, and the language of prayer and intercession, all in 1 Timothy chapter 2. Just real quick, it says, First of then, uh, I, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, um, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. And so, you know, Paul's telling Timothy, listen, we need, to, we need to fix this church, and the first thing you need to do is get them to be a praying people. And then he says, this is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. And then he tells us why, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. So the New Testament connects in the clearest possible way a connection between prayers, in particular intercessions, and people being saved. And so, okay, what is that connection? And he says in verse 5, because there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. So we know that God does not promise to hear the prayers of those who pray outside of faith in Christ. And so prophets, priests, people of God, they have a vocation to pray for those who either won't or can't pray for themselves. And all of this is connected to God's desire for people to turn from their wicked ways and live. So it it is the work of the church then to be exactly what Amos shows himself to be. And and we stand in a very similar spot in terms of where Amos stands there in chapter seven. Think of of how the Lord has told us. What is coming in terms of the day of judgment, the day of his return? We know what will happen on that day, and and we know what will happen to those who stand apart from Christ on that day. And so having seen that vision that the Lord has given to us, what do we do? We pray. Is that is that what you're saying, Pastor Boo? You got it. That's beautiful. That's exactly what it is. We are among the people who deserve death and hell, and we, like Amos, say, Listen, we can't stand against you, O Lord, and we want not – and while we have faith in Christ's salvation, which is wonderful, because now we have access to God through Christ so that we can pray for those who don't yet have that. And when we go out into the world, the people judge us just like some people might have judged Amos. Oh, Amos must really like sticking it to those people. No, Amos is proclaiming the word of the Lord. Prophets weren't treated very kindly because of it. And the church itself serves those roles. It's one giant prophet to the world. The Lord says, repent. It's one giant priest to the world that prays on behalf of the people to God. And that's why we say in our prayer of the church, at least in most versions, um, we pray every Sunday for um, those who haven't um, come to faith that they might join us. Right, yeah. The the opening that we use here at Grace is, is let us pr- pray for the whole Church of God in Christ Jesus, and then for all people according to their needs. So we're not only praying for the Church, we are actually praying for all people according to their needs. And, exactly. and if the Church does not do that, then who will? As you, you said, the Lord promises to hear the prayers of those who are in Christ. So so if we don't do that, who who will? The, the role that Amos fills here in chapter 7 is the role that the, the church fills still today, because we are found in Christ, who is, is the ultimate intercessor, who indeed still intercedes for us, as, as we read in the New Testament. Pastor Boo, we've got just under four minutes left now on the morning. Any points that, that you didn't get to bring out that you'd like to, to go to or wrap things up for us? You know what, just in general to say that, you know, you and I talked off the air about um, just, I I told you, I said, listen, there's three verses. How are we going to fill an hour? I think it's kind of amusing because you can see how much the Lord packs into the text. um, And not just because we're searching for things to talk about, but because the Lord's word is so, um, is so proactive. It, it, It just, it, it leads us to other places in scripture. And, you know, we, even when we might have like a, a, 
not a full understanding of what something means, we can always look to other places in Scripture to give us the answer. Um, and so I just appreciate um, appreciate everybody who's listening and you for taking the time to be in the Word of the Lord, um, which is which by the way goes hand in hand with our intercessory prayer because as we pray to the Lord as He's commanded, and not only for ourselves but for other people. Um, he also promises to speak to us. We don't need prophets anymore. He speaks to us through his son, and that word, of course, is found in our scriptures. Pastor Phil Boo is the pastor at Christ Lutheran Church in Hebron, Connecticut, helping us this morning with Amos chapter 7, verses 1 through 3. Pastor Boo, thank you for your time today. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. The prophet Amos saw the word of the Lord. He saw what God would have him hear and then preach. And this first vision that he sees here in Amos chapter 7 is terrifying. A swarm of locusts formed by the Lord coming at the worst possible time, right when the crops that had started couldn't be harvested right when the crops that were following were just sprouting. If this swarm comes, all will be lost. And the prophet prays for forgiveness, not because the people have earned it, not because the people deserve it. The prophet knows that they do deserve the Lord's judgment, but instead he prays that the Lord would be merciful and gracious because of who the Lord is. That's who he is. He is merciful and gracious. He's made his promise to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to send the Savior from their line, and so he has. The Savior's name is Jesus Christ, and he is the one who stands between us and God as our intercessor, who pleads for us. That's what he did in his sacrificial death for us. He stood between us and God. He took the wrath, the judgment that we deserved upon himself. He paid the price in our place and now risen from the dead and ascended to the Father's right hand. He intercedes on our behalf, and we know that the Father hears his prayers. And now, now as his church, we join in those prayers of our Lord Jesus Christ, and we intercede for the world asking the Lord to be merciful, asking the Lord that, that his word would go forth and bear the fruit of faith in the hearts of those who hear, just as he has promised to do. That's our role as the church today, to stand in that same place as Amos, to see the Lord's word and to pray for his forgiveness for those who have not yet heard, those who have not yet received it. And what a joy it is to stand in that place with Amos and with you. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.